0: Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast.
1: Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 322. I'm Tom Mullooly, and joining me today is Brendan Mullooly and Tim
2: Mullooly. So this morning, um, the, the Fed, Jerome Powell, came out and made some comments about changes in their perspective and, and goals and how they're going to go about approaching inflation and, and interest rates. Um, what are your thoughts on what he had to say?
0: I think that this was just him saying something that everybody thought he was going to do anyway without actually saying it, which is that they're they're going to ignore higher inflation uh, for the time being, and and not not pigeonhole themselves so much to a set two percent target for inflation, but rather something that averages that over the long term, kind of gives them a, a little more opportunity to say we don't need to, we don't need to raise rates, so we can keep them lower for a longer time, even if the economy is showing signs of inflation. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's good or bad. And I don't I don't think anybody else does either.
1: In two 2000- thousand. Twelve. Janet Yellen stepped up to uh, chair the Fed and uh, she started talking about this 2% inflation. I actually, I think it was Bernanke who started it. and She continued it. They talked about having a target rate of 2% for inflation. And immediately, every time that they would have a press conference, and it wasn't every meeting at that point, it was, well, what do you mean by 2%? Is it going to be one and a half percent, two percent, two and a half percent? Is it going to be an average? What? And I think this is Powell just saying there's going to be it's going to be an average of two percent inflation. But in order for that to happen, if you've got one and a half percent inflation now, you have to get something more than two percent to average two percent. Yeah, like in in the past, they would talk about the Fed. And their dual mandate being
0: like stable prices, meaning inflation and low, steady, uh, as low as possible unemployment, the natural rate of employment they always talk about. So in the past, maybe people are guessing that they would they would take a sign and say, hey, unemployment is very low. Things are going well in other areas of the economy. We expect there to be inflation. Therefore, we're going to raise interest rates because we don't want to be blindsided by inflation. I think this is saying that they're 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 going to let inflation go and we we, they may have to quickly raise rates in the future to catch up to that, because, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion now about uh, about what what kind of inflation we're looking at, because you can always point to different areas of the economy and say there's definitely inflation there or, or there's not here. And it just depends on how the Fed's interpreting that. And uh, I mean, there's there's no clear definition of that. uh, And I don't
2: think there will be. It just it seems like the the move has been to preemptively do things because you expect inflation to come from, like you said, low unemployment. Uh, But they have said that that hasn't been the case, that the expected inflation never really came whether or not that was because they preemptively made moves with interest rates but now it seems they're just going to react as opposed to preemptively doing things like once the inflation actually shows up if it does then then they're going to make moves based off of that
1: you're right and yellen started raising rates in 2014 actually started 2018 20- I think it was 2015. Her statement at the time was, as the employment picture continues to improve, we expect that we will get inflation. So they were relying on a forecast of increased inflation. And that's why they wanted, like you said, to be proactive. But, you know, for 30 years plus, I've heard people complain that the Fed is behind the curve, meaning they're always too late. You know, we get inflation, then they raise rates. I, I think what what Powell's with Powell's statement today is he's saying we belong behind the curve, that that's our place. We sh- we need to wait instead of saying we are forecasting higher inflation as we get lower unemployment. Well, that hasn't really worked, so now we're putting ourselves back behind the curve we're going to have a little bit of inflation live with it we can certainly absorb it I think if it's a little bit of
0: inflation that's fine if if there's a lot I think it may be problematic but we've only really had that in one instance in history where where you know financial data uh, is is relevant in terms of like quick and and like high inflation happening all at once I don't know if it's going to be a problem but I think there could be a potential scenario where it isn't a great thing.
1: We haven't had inflation, like you just said, we haven't had inflation in such a long time. High, in, high yeah, inflation. Yeah, th- th- I don't think anybody really knows. In 1989, nobody was complaining about inflation. The inflation rate that year was 5%. The market was just fine. So I, I think one of, the, one of the big takeaways from me in reading the story today about Powell's announcement at Jackson Hole was that the Fed has really become a better learning machine. And we've talked about this on previous podcasts where uh, they get a little faster and a little more adept at making changes and responding to things. I mean, look at what the Fed did. I know I sound like a broken record, but look at what the Fed did in March and April, how they brought a lot of firepower to uh, help shorten the drawdown in the economy. It's really been remarkable compared to previous disasters when they had to step in. So the Fed is learning and learning to adapt and that's great. So there was an article in the Institutional Investor. The gentleman
2: who wrote the article was claiming that uh, investors, the title was that they're clinging to an outdated strategy at the worst possible time, talking about hedging in your portfolio against stock market risk and he's talking about how since bonds are yielding very low interest rates right now that it's not exactly the best diversification method for people what do you guys think about that
0: yeah he called he called the 60 40 portfolio the worst the worst of all worlds which i think is uh A little bit alarmist Uh, people are talking about this because bonds usually give you two things in a portfolio meaning that you you would collect an interest rate to hold them so you you earn something from them while also diversifying your stock risk now you're not really getting much from the bond side of your portfolio uh, assuming you're using you know quality bonds or treasuries you know absent absent that uh, is it still worth it to use them as a diversifier? I've heard, I've heard this claim a lot of times in the last eight years uh, because rates haven't necessarily been much better than they are now at any, at any point in time. They were higher, but they weren't like anything to write home about ever over, over the last decade. And this guy, the claim that he makes is they're less likely to provide protection than they were in the past. My counter to that is like, let's see. Because people have been saying that for 10 years now, and every time the market goes down, high-quality bonds and treasuries have diversified stock risk pretty well, in my opinion. Not perfect, but pretty well, like earlier this year.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Um, The quote that caught my eye from that article was, he said, 60-40 is an artifact from another time. I agree with you, and and my follow-up to anyone who wants to plant the flag on something like this is... Okay, diversify with what? With what else? Yeah, what, what is the alternative? Here? Right. Yeah. What are you going to offer that's going to provide liquidity, like a bond portfolio? So you could hold you could hold money
0: in cash. However, I would say that bonds, even with the low interest rates they have, may be better than, they're not maybe, they, they're going to be better than cash because you're at least getting something on your money. So if you're gonna look at real returns, um, you're not you're not gonna get very good real returns on either bonds or cash, but you're gonna get better real returns on bonds because at least you're being paid in interest rate for that. So I don't think cash is a solution here.
1: Yeah. I also wonder uh, if articles like this or statements like this just kind of appeal to the people who are just reading the headlines and not really understanding what we're talking about Um, We get into conversations sometimes and and we uh, talk to folks and we recommend bonds and they're like, but rates are so low, like we'll never make money doing that. But yet with rates as low as they are now, when prices move in the right direction, you can make money. Even with rates this low, you can see some appreciation in your portfolio. I'd also add that the reason
0: we're usually discussing bonds as a piece of the portfolio with somebody is because they've also said to us that they can't handle being one hundred percent stocks. Right. And I, so yeah. you can't you can't on one hand complain about low rates and then on the other one say that you can't be one hundred percent stocks because. <laughs>
2: Well, which yeah. one do you want? You know right. Exactly. Yeah. One or the other, right? I think a lot of these articles, people have been writing about, you know, you can't make money in bonds when they're yielding nothing. And it always comes back to the question that we have brought up a bunch of times. It's like, well, why are you owning the bonds in your portfolio? If you're owning them to make money, maybe you should just have them invested in equities instead, because the odds of you making more money in equities are higher than they would be if... If you're in bonds. So reading this article, that was the question. That was the thing that just kept coming up in my head was like, well, why are these people owning bonds in the first place? And I think the author was speaking more about like pension funds and and bigger funds, not necessarily individual investors. But the message for individual investors is different than than it would be for a pension fund slightly. Um, I
0: don't think it is. I think the pension funds like to think that they're these like sophisticated people. Yeah. And I think that this guy was talking his own book because his solution here was to own, put options instead of, instead of bonds as the way to hedge your portfolio, to which I say fine, but this guy included like a, a nice pretty chart about how bonds were a drag on returns and, and use that as some of the ammo to say why they were no longer a valid piece of the portfolio at this point. But my rebuttal to that is that, of course, there are drag on returns. You're basically viewing them as an insurance policy. And that's exactly what a put option is, too. He didn't run a chart showing the drag paying for put options over a 10 year period would have had, but it would have been a cost nonetheless. And it probably would have cost more than bonds over the last 10 years, because again, like I said before, you at least got something for owning the bonds. And we can round it down to nothing because interest rates are very low. But it's something. Puts are just a cost. It's it's like paying an insurance premium. So it's not that that's an, not a valid way to hedge your portfolio. If you want to do it that way, fine. But I don't I don't know that it's necessarily an improvement over
2: bonds. It's just different.
1: Yeah,
2: I think that's also a difference for. You know, pension funds and individual investors. There, there is more uh, strategy or sophistication that you you need to be able to understand. Put options or options trading in general, and I I feel like the odds of individual investors being able to successfully do that is low.
0: I don't think it's necessary either. I just I think it's something that a pension guy would talk about because it sounds smarter than just owning bonds because that's the conventional way or take taking less risk owning bonds. Those are like the boring uh, average Joe ways to hedge your portfolio. And I happen to think they work just fine. But uh, you can complicate it if you want to by owning options or putting it into some kind of tail risk fund that owns options for you. Um, And I think they're going to ultimately
2: cost you money over time. But if you feel smarter doing it, then congrats. Um, So there was a good article from Christine Benz in Morningstar. we bring up her stuff a lot. This was a retirement readiness checklist, and she started off by saying that the overall question of, am I ready to retire, is such a big question. I mean, it's hard to answer that right off the bat. Uh, so she talked about how, you know, growing up, her mother used to make checklists for things, and it, it breaks down a big question or a big task into more bite-sized, manageable pieces. And then she, she broke down a, a couple smaller questions you could ask yourself to see if you're ready for retirement so we can go over a couple of those and if you're listening you know ask yourself these questions if you're getting ready for retirement the first one that she brought up was to consider the retirement date which seems pretty basic but there's a lot that goes into that obvious financial benefits to you know delaying uh, a couple of years if you continue working you bring in more money You if you have investments you can you know, let them continue to grow for a few years. But she also mentioned how uh, there are non-financial factors that play into that as well. Like your, if you delay too long, you know, your quality of life, your health, what, what you can do in retirement might be sacrificed. So there are some things to consider when determining when exactly you want to retire.
1: One of the things that I wrote about just yesterday uh, <clears throat> on the blog was you know, when you start looking at Social Security and you look at your your actual numbers, you can, if you set up your own account on the Social Security website, you can actually see what your earnings history was for each year that you worked. And something that a lot of folks overlook is Social Security will use the highest 35 years of income. So if you start working at age 20, and you have a thousand dollars of income for that year and you want to retire in your 50s, that may still be one of the years that's included. So if you can work, you know, a few more years in your 50s and 60s, that may cancel out some of the earlier years where you weren't making so much money and that can help to actually increase your base.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it could even be part-time work because you could be replacing years from when you were 17 years old doing a summer job in high school, you could be replacing an income from that year with, you know, even even if it's half of what you earned as a full-time employee, uh, that that could still help, you know, raise your uh, benefit for
2: Social Security eventually. Yeah. She did say to approach this with some sort of humility because she did point out that a lot of people tend to be pretty bad at estimating when they think they're going to be able to retire, meaning that... People tend to be more optimistic about when they can retire without actually digging into the numbers like we were just talking about and figuring out, okay, when is when is it practical for me to retire?
1: It's actually a good thing to, to start doing in your forties <clears throat> and when and certainly when you turn fifty is to look at these things and you know, people look at their monthly expenses and they, they, they are doing their best to try and project what their monthly expenses are going to be in retirement. But a lot of times we'll sit at the table discussing with clients things like what your monthly expenses might be with a few more years of inflation on top of it. But then add in a trip or two trips or add in a new car I and... Mean, you know a new car today the average sticker price is like 40 grand yeah. so that's a big expense that most people overlook yeah. when they're starting to project how much they're going to need in retirement
2: that was one that was the next point that she brought up was assessing your uh, retirement income needs and how generally the rule of thumb people like to use is 80% of your working income but she also pointed out and I agree not to just simply rely on rules of thumb. Uh they're good starting points, but it's going to be a little bit different for for everyone. If you uh have more in savings, uh you might not need as much compared to your your working income and same thing with the withdrawal rate of, you know, 4% a year from your retirement accounts. They're good starting point, uh, but you actually need to sit down and do it yourself. Yeah. I think the 20% number, I'd have to look,
0: but if my guess is that, that, that or the 80% number, meaning like lop 20% off of your expenses, right. uh, comes from the idea that, that people try to save 20% of their income because you obviously don't need to continue saving when you're in retirement. But the the, the way that we'd like to arrive at that, with clients is to tally up all the expenses as they exist now. And then, yeah, you're going to back out the savings. But if you were only saving 5% of your income towards the end of your career or, or whatever, maybe you're yeah. saving 30 because you were supercharging your stuff down the home stretch for retirement, uh, it might be a lot different than uh, you. Know, you can't just assume you need whatever your gross income was before retirement.
1: And And one of the trips in that process is you know if you're saving 20 percent of your income that means you're paying tax that money comes out on a pre-tax basis that means you're still paying your income taxes based on the net number after you make your 401k or your retirement plan contributions so your taxes may or may not change in retirement Mm -hmm. yeah depending on pre post-tax savings what you're doing yeah yeah it's a big issue there's a lot of factors that come into play when you're getting ready to retire the math changes entirely.
2: So once you determine how much you're going to need in retirement in terms of income, that, that helps you and determine when you're going to retire. That helps you determine how much you're going to need from your investments. And one of the other points, uh, checklist items that she had was to craft a long-term portfolio based off of those income needs. It kind of goes back to you know, how much exposure do you need in the market, do you do you need to be taking more risk with your investments, or can you afford to have more money in cash and bonds? Um, but the the long term nature of this portfolio that you're still going to have some money invested throughout your retirement to help uh, supplement other things like social security and you know just traditional savings.
1: There's so much that comes into play when we start talking about things like that. You know folks who who sometimes don't even really understand the concept of the four percent rule will bring up the four percent and they think they're taking four percent out every year that's not how the four percent rule works I mean there's so many we could probably do a podcast on every one of these yeah. uh, topics so there's a a lot to digest with this
0: yeah so uh one thing too when you're you, these things all kind of like get pushed together uh, at, at this point in time because once you have a date in mind and the amount you need, then, then you consider, all right, what am I going to get from Social Security or a pension? And you got to fill the gap with your investments. But that may or may not be feasible or you may or may not be comfortable with the type of portfolio that, that you require uh, based on the numbers. So another thing suggested was to consider uh, annuities, meaning like a single premium immediate annuity, like can, can you buy yourself more pension income, essentially, is, is what you're thinking about. What are your resources? Would would you be liquid enough outside of that still if you took a chunk of money to buy another income stream on top of your Social Security? And would that make you feel better about the amount of risk you need to take in your portfolio? I mean, that's all, all these things, are you need to consider them, and, and taxes on top of that, too, because you can't just consider your portfolio withdrawals in a vacuum because most times right. we're talking about 401k IRA dollars with folks, and you've got to take...
2: More than you actually need to account for taxes. So What are your taxes going to look like in retirement too? Yeah, that was another point on the on the checklist was tax management, making sure that you're taking money from the right places in the right order. You know, uh, so you don't have to end up paying more in taxes if you don't have to. Uh, all of those things play into if you're set up to retire or not. Uh, the last couple things were assessing your insurance coverage. Maybe once you retire, there are certain Insurance policies that you have that you may not necessarily need anymore, and then also, you make sure your estate plan is lined up and uh, looking the way that you want it to, because by the time you retire, you most likely have uh, a handful of assets that you would pass along to other people. Um,
0: it's probably the the highest so. the highest net worth you're ever gonna have is is at the beginning of retirement because you're gonna start living on those assets in some yeah. capacity, uh, you know, as as you move through the years. So yeah, it's, I mean, if you've got the most you're going to have, then, then account for it all. And, and you'd hope that along the way that just continues, uh, you know, to, to work out as you use those assets to live your life.
1: Yeah. And just a reminder, I'm not everybody pays estate taxes, but everybody needs an estate plan. Right. It's overlooked by a lot of people.
2: Yeah. So that was a really good post uh, by christine we'll link to it in the show notes so that you can go through all of her points in detail and kind of ask yourself the those questions and figure it out if you're getting towards retirement if you're as ready as you thought you might have been that's all we have for episode 322 of the maluli asset podcast thanks for tuning in and we'll talk to you next week